Um, you folks are very kind in letting me come back to my former home church, and I always feel like I'm among friends. I started attending what used to be Grace Baptist Church when I got off the boat as a little East German war orphan back in February of 1953. Okay, that sort of dates me. But I came, I left my native East Germany um, when I was, I wasn't even a teenager yet. I spent, spent a year in West Germany living with friends till you Americans decided to give me a visa to come to North America, and that took a whole year. And then my friends with whom I stayed put me on the boat and uh, said bye-bye. And little did I realize that when I crossed the ocean, that was the worst storm on the Atlantic in 200 years. <laughs> I thought 30 to 40 foot waves were the order of the day. The boat got uh, pushed way off course. It took two additional days to come to New York City. We had to take on additional fuel in Halifax, Canada, before the boat could continue. And uh, the first Sunday that um, I was here, I didn't know any English yet, but I went to church with my relatives, and uh, they attended Grace Baptist Church, which was the building was in downtown Springfield, Mattoon and Elliott Streets. And um, so week after week, I attended with them, and I've been with that church ever since then. And it's always great to be back. Not too many people are left from that era. My cousin Evelyn there in the second row used to be our uh, youth sponsor. The pastor was David Nettleton, who, who became later on the president of Faith Baptist Bible College in Ankeny, Iowa. And he sort of kept track of me all the years that I went uh, to school. And uh, once I was ready to finish uh, up, he asked me if I would be willing to consider teaching at his Bible college in Ankeny, Iowa. And so I eventually agreed to, that I would consider it. And as soon as he got that in, in, uh, information, he asked me if I could fly up from Dallas. I was at Dallas Seminary at the time to uh, interview with the board because they, he was hiring five new faculty members. That was 1969, and I had um, a very profitable ministry, I think, teaching hundreds of students for the next 30 years. I still teach. I have a class, layman's class, at our church in Des Moines, Iowa, from around the state of Iowa, and they, I let them decide what they want to study, and we are going through Bible doctrine right now. We are on the doctrine of sin, before we started the doctrine, I wrote a letter to everybody. I give daily quizzes, you know, the three by five card quizzes. I told them they would all do, get a perfect score because we're all experts on the topic, the topic of sin. Now, they're gonna miss me this Tuesday, but I usually try to bring back some. What's typical for New England? Maple, sugar, candy. So they all get a maple sugar candy and we just postponed the 10 weeks, one uh, Tuesday on into the spring. So the Tuesday after Easter, we're done with that. And then coming up in the fall, the Lord willing, the doctrine of salvation, and then the church, and then what? What's the last doctrine of the 10 major doctrine? Come on, eschatology, which means the study of last things, the study of the future. Um, when I talk with your pastor, we sometimes speak in Russian, don't we? Um, so if you hear us speak, it's not the language of heaven yet, but I had to learn Russian because I lived under communism in East Germany. Very bad. But uh, I knew Russian before I knew English. But it's good to speak the language from time to time. Um, I have been fortunate to have had a ministry in Western Germany and now in Eastern Germany and Eastern Europe as well. Ever since 1954, I'm sorry, no, ever since 1963, 
uh, every summer I've gone over there since 63 to minister in churches established, many of them by my former students at Faith. Our school's very missionary-minded. The motto still is, with the word to the world. And that's why you exist, as you indicated, Pastor, in your opening comments. But uh, the only time I couldn't go back there was last year. I was here in November, and I think I related that to you. Uh, Germany is closed off, as are many of the um, European Union countries, but they hopefully will open up soon. I conferred with the German consulate in Chicago by telephone and by email, asking them if I could go because pastors there were waiting to have the dates confirmed for our meetings. They said, no, that isn't of common good. Preaching is not uh, for the common good of the people or lecturing. If I were an athlete or a musician, I think they would have let me over there. But I don't know what's going to happen this year, but at any rate, I enjoy ministering in churches, and I'm glad to be here uh, this Sunday morning. Um, I think your pastor's well put to go through the book of Acts because that's the beginning of the local church as well as the universal church. I have an outline. Uh, you won't be quizzed on that unless your pastor's going to quiz you this evening, but pastor, here are the outlines. He ordered 40 of them, so we have lots to go around. Now, if you feel like sleeping, if you missed an hour of sleep last night, you can sleep and still get the essential information. You will notice on the front cover, I have the picture of your lovely church. My recommendation would be, and you have a real neat website. Uh, I look at the pictures from time to time. But if you can move, t take another picture of the church and get the top of the steeple in, we don't need all the, the part of the road or the sidewalk, but that's the only recommendation I would have for the, for the pictorial display of your uh, lovely New England church building. I think it's important to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes about the ministry of the gospel. We are all called upon to be witnesses, but our ministry is directed through the local church. And so on page two, I ask the question, the local church, peripheral or primary? Well, it's primary in God's program, and you can see the acrostic A, B, C, D, E, F, G, why the local church is important for those who are watching over the the uh, Zooming, A stands for the administrator of the two churches. Secondly, it is the local church is the B, body of the risen Lord. C, the center of biblical edification. D, the discharger of the Great Commission. E, the executor of church discipline. F, the flock of the chief shepherd. And G, the ground and pillar of truth. Going to page three, um, why is the local church important? Well, I've thought about it quite a bit in the past. Sometimes I get invited to speak on that very topic. There are people almost in, at any age who say, we don't need the local church. The local church is passe. When I went to Dallas Seminary, uh, the school was overrun with people from Campus Crusade International. They were good kids. I'm glad they got a good training there. But Campus Crusade, in those days, I don't know what they're doing now, but they said, we don't need the local church. We don't have to go to any local church because the local church isn't evangelistic enough. I don't know what local church they were talking about. In Dallas, they have one of the largest uh, Baptist churches anywhere. First Baptist, W.W. W. Criswell was the pastor in those days. And 
they had 8,000 members and 4,000 in attendance on a Sunday morning. But if you attended there for any service, someone from church would call on you the following week, normally a couple or two guys or whatever. They were very interested in reaching individuals for the Lord Jesus Christ. They had the church divided into little groups so that you could be mentored. You could be discipled during the week. But Campus Crusade said, no, we don't need the local church. Since this is my home church, I need to make a confession. I was sort of hard on the Campus Crusaders. I lived in an eightplex uh, as a student, and most of the students were married, so we single students had lots and lots of room because they had dorms for the married students. The school bought an aplex, and they took it down afterward, but right next to me on the second floor lived three campus crusaders, and they never went to a church service. And in their own dorm room, they had the Lord's Supper. And if they wanted to do that, I wouldn't interfere with them, but they were very noisy. Okay, and that's where the confession came in. And so I knocked on the wall to keep it down to 10 decibels. And instead of being less noisy, they increased in volume. Okay? Um, then they apparently didn't like what I was saying to them or knocking on them. So we had a heating system where from the basement hot air would rise within the wall and then there was a flap, metal flap you pulled out so the hot air would be spread into the rooms. That was no longer functioning but it was still there, those flaps. And they shouted and so they thought I would be running in the bathroom with a clear ceramic tile and they had taken a can of shaving cream and a Texas straw, the Texas straws, everything is big and or this big, and they took the shaving cream, put it through their flap, through the wall in my floor. So when I walked in the bathroom, there was a stack of shaving cream this high. They had emptied a whole can, like I said. And they thought if I ran in there, I would slip, fall, and have a brain concussion or something like that. Well, I noticed what they had done, and so I needed to reciprocate, okay? When they bought the building, uh, the seminary bought the building, they left certain place, things in place. Coming up my, the case of stairs, staircase to my second floor, there's a little closet, and there was, the only thing left in there was a can of some uh, bug spray or in, insect spray, but it had been there for decades. And the smell of that stuff was worse than uh, skunk smell, if you can believe that. Horrible, horrible. I don't know why I left it there, why I didn't throw it out, but uh, I took that can and had pulled the straw out of the wall from their place to mine, and I put the straw in and took that can of bad-smelling stuff and squeezed it over there, hoping that they would asphyxiate or something like that. <laughs> well, <clears throat> they screamed when they smelled the stuff, and so they set up a little fan on their side of the wall to blow that nauseating smell in my direction. But the, the gap was only about this high when you move the flap, so that wasn't that much of a smell. Well, um, they set up the fan to blow the air in my direction, that nauseating smell. So what I did is take water and lift up the straw like that and funnel the water downhill on the floor around their electric fan. <laughs> now, they didn't run into their bathroom to become electrocuted. They were very casual in pulling out the plexo. Um, that's how I tried to deal with campus crusaders in those days. If they had been a little uh, more subdued, I wouldn't have done that. So now the confession is out and they are good people, uh, but uh, they thought the local church had no more effectiveness in witnessing. In recent years, I don't know, are you familiar with what Harold Camping said of Family Radio? 
He's the one who predicted the Lord's coming for, what was it, September 21st in 2009? Didn't you have these signs all over New England saying, the scripture says the Lord comes back. And he is Amil, which meant that the world would end. Of course, he had written a book earlier in 1994 to predict, before 1990, to predict the coming. Then the Lord didn't come back. He wrote another book. And then he predicted the Lord's coming for uh, 2011 or, or 12, whatever it was. Well, when that didn't happen, all he could tell his, uh, the news, news uh, reporters that came to his house, he said, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Well, but many people had given up their livelihood, had sold their homes, had invested tens of thousands of dollars in those posters all over the place. But he kept saying, do you get family radio around here? They have the world's best Christian music. But, you know, they, they were teaching, Des Moines has one of their most powerful stations, but they were teaching uh, what is not biblical truth. He said, since 1988, the local churches have been invaded by Satan. I mean, they have a network still across the nation. And I think they still teach that. He no longer taught that you could predict the rapture or the second coming or the end of the world. But you need to leave the local church, any local church, because Satan has entered the local church. And what you do is gather on Sunday around the radio to listen to programs like Family Radio, one of their speakers. And the fact of the matter is, he said, no one, no one can be saved in a local church anymore. And that's just, you know, just a few years ago. And they're still teaching that in part, I think, on their, their station. So there are all sorts of groups who say, we, we don't need the local church. I, there are groups like, I mentioned Campus Crusade International. Indivarsity has had a very good track record of making... Uh, the uh, gospel known, at least here in the United States. When I studied in Germany, before going to Dallas Seminary, I stayed in a dormitory where every Friday night we had a Bible study group led by someone from the German part of InterVarsity, Deutsche Studentengemeinde, a German student fellowship, which was InterVarsity. And there were people from not just the theological department there, uh, but from, from uh, they have a good law, law school there in Erlangen, where I studied, and uh, medical school. And there were 10, 12 students there. And when I was in town for the weekend, every I would attend the group. And they did not encourage the young people to go to a local church that Sunday. They said, you need to, you know, be on the loose. But every Friday night, we ended up in a debate whether what we were studying, we were studying Genesis, the life of Abraham, whether that was history or not. And of all the students there, I was the only one who kept insisting every Friday night that what we were studying was history. They said, no, Abraham was not a historical I said, why spend an hour or two every Friday night studying the life of Abraham when he didn't exist, when he didn't actually live. And in America, that would have been unthinkable at the time because in the varsity, it was very, very evangelistic. But even there, the, the tenor was, don't go to the local church, stay with our group, and, and you'll be all right. The, the aftermath was I gave the leader of that group a book to read. Some of you may have in your own library by, um, let's see, Thy Word is Truth by the professor of West, Westminster Theological Seminary and uh, Edward J. Young. And the man read English. I gave him the book. And when I got it back from him, a conversion had taken place. He admitted in tears, and we prayed together, 
that he had been leading those young people astray by not teaching the historicity of Abraham. We were debating, did Abraham believe in the resurrection of the dead? So we turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham was willing to offer his son Isaac because he knew that God would, if he had to offer him, restore him to life. And they didn't hear, never thought about that until I turned with them to Hebrews chapter 11. In other words, the local church is very important. For one thing, under the letter A, it's the administrator of the two ordinances. I mentioned my Campus Crusade friends, I still remember their names, had the Lord's Supper in their dorm room. And at that time, the Dallas Seminary function, uh, sanctioned that. I think since then, they've departed from that a little bit and, and were a little more firm. But the fact of the matter is, uh, the local church is the organization uh, through which the two ordinances which we subscribe to, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, are administered. I know we all have friends, I think, that were baptized in somebody's swimming pool or somebody's uh, outdoor pond or whatever. That's great. I'm glad Christians, once they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, are baptized. Baptism, as you know, the word baptism is a loan word from the Greek. Baptizo is to submerge or immerse. It's never sprinkled or poured. I was sprinkled as in the Methodist church as an infant. I don't remember that at all. My parents were well-intentioned. Well but biblically, baptism is a ritual that shows our death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there has been a time in your life when you have recognized your sinner, and this is why Christ came, we sang about that, in several ways this morning, beautiful choruses. Um, and you've trusted in Christ as the only Savior, then you're saved. And for you're saved how long? Eternally. Okay? And then to show the public that you've been a believer, you are immersed because that identifies you with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. I think you know all, all that. You've been well taught in that area. Well, why are the why do we say the local church is administrator of the due order? Because, as you can see, we have the example of the early church. For the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, when you come together in the church, this is what you do. They had a love feast, before the, the uh, <coughs> Lord's Supper, uh, we call it an ordinance, as is baptism. Many of our friends, whether Catholic or whatever, call it a sacrament. The difference between a sacrament and an ordinance is this. An ordinance is a rite, if you want to write it down somewhere, a rite prescribed by, by Christ for the church. A sacrament is a visible means of invisible grace. By a sacrament, you believe that God gives you a special blessing. Obviously, you're blessed when you obey his, his word, but we, we don't make these as sacraments. We make them uh, 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 ordinances. We call them ordinances. When you get into the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary, they give you an oral exam. Lots of written exams, blue books, blue book after year after year, or, or page after page, book after book. One of my questions was, from Dr. Walford was this: list or, or trace the history, trace the history of Gentile nations in the Old Testament. <laughs> I think I filled five blue books, <laughs> but uh, anyway, they said in a verbal interview, they said, have you read our doctrinal statement of the Dallas Seminary? I said, yes, I have. Do you have any recommendations? I said, yes, I do. 
uh, they all wondered, what does he, what, would he let him, will we let him in the doctoral program? I said, you call baptism and the Lord's Supper a sacrament. This we do, we do, they didn't know that. I said, I'd rather change the word to an ordinance. But see, once, twice a year, we had a day of prayer at the seminary. And in the chapel, Chaver Chapel, they passed around the elements. And the only ones who, with, who withheld, who with, kept back from celebrating the Lord's Supper after the day of prayer were students from regular Baptist churches. Because we as Baptists, and I think you folks believe that this is an ordinance given to the local church. Though anybody can perform it if he is um, sanctioned so by the local church. A few years ago, before one of my Israel tours, I had a man, man from the big evangelical free church in Des Moines come to me and say, Doc, if I go with you to Israel, will you baptize me in the Sea of Galilee? I said, I'd be glad to, if you have not been baptized, and if your church sanctions me as their representative. He had been a deacon in that church for 10 years, but had never been baptized. And I think highly of our evangelical free friends. We have lots of friends in, in those churches, but in their church, they don't make it, they say it's an ordinance, a ritual prescribed by Christ for the church, but you don't have to be baptized. Or if you want to be sprinkled, great. As an infant, fine. As a teenager, okay. As an adult. Or do you want to be poured? Or do you want to be immersed? They leave it wide open. I said, okay, if I act as your church's representative, I'll be glad to do it. His buddy came along on the tour. He had not been a member of the church. He was a regular attendant. I said, if I baptize you, then Jim, you need to become a member of that church because that is the New, New Testament pattern. They were saved. You can see the Acts 2 passage on page 3. They were saved. They that gladly received the word were baptized. And the same, they were, the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. As an aside, I was asked from Bible, in Bible college when I graduated the oral exam, was that the local church or the universal church? And my answer was both. Because in Jerusalem, the church started. There were 3,000 souls. Many of them uh, didn't stay there. They were there for the day of Pentecost. And they went back to their home churches, where in many places, the church is of unknown origin. Probably the church in Rome was established by people who were there on the day of Pentecost the church in Damascus, the church in Antioch, the church in Alexandria, Egypt. But at any rate, um, it's an ordinance for the local church, and they didn't have a local church then, but it started the local church in Jerusalem. The church in Des Moines decided I would be a representative for them. And so we were on the Sea of Galilee in a hotel just north of Tiberias. How many of you have been to Israel? Good. You've got a marvelous experience coming away. If you're not going to be there in this life, you'll be there for a thousand years in the millennium, right? But at any rate, we stayed in the hotel and uh, a beautiful, it's still standing, uh, overlooking this, the Sea of Galilee. And I was with the two young men in the evening before, the, before their baptism. We had some pastors on the tour who were going to participate in, in the ceremony the next morning. And the door opened up. They were in their, in their bed, these two guys. I was sitting there, and back there where the camera's positioned, the door opened up, and a lady came in, never looked up, came halfway toward me. There was a chair and a desk there, put her coat over the uh, back of the chair, put her purse there, and... Then she looked up and she said, Ach du Liebezeit, oh my goodness in German. I said to her, when she saw me sitting, I said to her, Ma'am, what room are you in, in German? She said, 435. I said, this is 
35. It seems as though in that hotel, the rooms on each floor had the same, the, the number 435, 530, had the same key. She never said a word. She picked up her bag and her coat went out and we just laughed our head off. But we had a wonderful baptismal service the following year. The reason I went with the, uh, to their room in the evenings because they had phoned their church in the States once more and the church back home was very pleased that these two young men were going to be baptized and so I acted as their representative. You can do that. We have the example of the early church we should have expectations that the church follow the pattern. So why is the local church important? I'm going to move along rather quickly. Because we administer baptism and the Lord's Supper. Secondly, the church is the, for the letter B, the body of the risen Lord. Now, the local church is the local representation of the universal church. The main difference, or one of the main differences, between this church and the universal church is in a local church, it's possible that they are unbelievers. Even in a Bible college, once in a while, one of our students gets saved. He or she realizes they've never been truly saved. And I had that happen in one of my classes. They didn't tell me about it for a year that such and such got saved in my the doctrine of salvation class but uh, it's interesting but in a universal church how do you get in the universal church well you get in there the split second you're saved but according to the scriptures if you want to put it down 1 Corinthians 12 13 for by one spirit are we what all baptized into one body, right? Whether we Jew or Gentile, bond or free. Now, our charismatic friends, the Pentecostal friends, as you probably know, say there are two types of baptism. There's a baptism for every believer at the moment of salvation, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. But in Acts 1, 5, Christ says to his disciples, just before he ascends, not many days hence, and you will be, what? Baptized by the Holy Spirit. One is a baptism with the Holy Spirit, uh, by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In Acts 1, 5, it's a baptism of power. And everyone should have the second baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. And as an evidence that you've had that special baptizing work, of the, you can speak in tongues. One of the least of all spiritual gifts, according to the list of uh, spiritual gifts in First Corinthians chapter 12. Well, the fact of the matter is, and I, I don't want to go too far afield on our discussion, but in First Corinthians 12:13, the Greek phrase for by one spirit, enumity. Okay, the Greek phrase in Acts 1:5, enumity. There are no two baptisms. It's one baptism. And it takes place, it's non-experiential, meaning you don't feel it. The moment you have trusted in Christ as your Savior and Him alone, you're born into the family of God, you're adopted, all sorts of spiritual blessings take place. The Holy Spirit seals you permanently till the day of salvation, but He, the Holy Spirit takes you and puts you in the universal body of Christ. They're only believers in the universal body. But we here at Grace Church are representing the universal body of Christ. The local church is the geographical representation of the universal church. Not people out on the golf course on a Sunday morning. They don't represent the universal body of Christ. But you folks meeting as a congregation whether for prayer next Sunday morning or for the morning service or whatever the function, you represent the local um, body of Christ. Thirdly, the local church is important because it is the center of biblical edification. God has established three institutions, right? Maybe you want to write them down. The church, 
the state or government, and the home. And there are three main concepts for each of those institutions that I want to mention. What's the purpose of the state? Well, to put, protect the good, good verse would be Romans 13, verse 4, the local government is administered to them for good who do good. It rewards those that are good to protect the good. And the sword is not in vain. He doesn't carry the sword to punish the evildoers. That's no longer a foregone conclusion that the government will, will do that. Been, you've been watching the news. There are certain attorney generals in cities, especially in California, that let criminals right back out. And our government does not wants to eliminate bail money so a, a person who's hauled in for a major or minor crime gets out without having to give any bail money. So uh, that seems to be on the, on the decline in our nation. But biblically, a government's job is to protect the good, to punish the evil, and to preserve order. That would be 1 Timothy 2, 2. We pray for all in authority, for kings and magistrates. Why? Verse 2, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Even in the Roman Empire, that was generally possible. So we pray forever for whoever's in charge. Not because we like the person or we think we agree with the person or we think that's the best person in that office, but God, Romans 13, 1 said, there are no, through Paul, there are no powers but those that are ordained of God. So we pray for our leaders. Why? That they may protect us, that they may punish the evildoers, and then they may preserve order. Why the, why the home? Why did God establish the home? Remember Genesis 2, 24? Therefore a man shall leave and cleave. Well, the, the Christian home, especially to reflect Christ, a loving relationship, Ephesians 5. You reflect the love of Christ for his church by the love of a husband for his wife. To rear children, you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, and rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, of course, and then to replenish the earth. We're not running out of natural resources. Rush Dooney, one of the uh, theologians had written a book, The Myth of Overpopulation. If you fly over the United States, say from Chicago out to California, you fly hour after hour over the most fertile soil. If you fly over Iowa, Illinois, or Illinois first, of course, and Iowa, the farmlands are vast, in Israel, you have one major valley that's fruitful, and that's the valley of Armageddon today, the plain of Astralon. In America, you have so much soil to raise crops. We're not running out of resources. So the mandate still is, not just with Adam and Eve, but right after the flood, Noah and descendants were told to, to replenish the earth, to fill up the earth. And then the... Uh, Purpose of the local church, I mentioned this. it's the center of biblical edification, but that is included on exalting the Savior. The local church, this church, exalts the Savior. He is the head of this church to evangelize sinners and exhort and edify the saints. To exalt the Savior, to evangelize sinners, and to exhort or to edify the saints. You probably have friends who are believers, genuine believers, but they don't believe in going to church, any church. They are violating the Hebrews 10 passage, right? Forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, 
even in the New Testament, but I suspect back then it was because persecution was beginning. The writer to the Hebrews, whoever he was, said, you have not yet resisted under blood. In other words, nobody had died a martyr's death yet. But people were failing to attend the service. Now we have the pandemic, so I know some people are very hesitant with prior conditions to go to the church because they might become infected with the virus. We can understand that. But the normal procedure of a person is when the church doors open, you're there. Not for your own sake, primarily, but for the sake of the Lord. But we all need exhortation. And it helps to be together with other Christians for mutual support. At the church that I attend in Iowa, Fellowship Baptist in Des Moines, uh, we still keep our distance. There are signs every other pew saying, do not use this pew, so you have a, an empty pew in front of you, an empty pew in back, and then you sit here with your family or whatever, and at the other end of the pew are the other folks. But that is all changing. Because as soon as the service is over, where do you meet? You meet in the hallway, and you have to elbow your way through to get to your car sometimes. People so enjoy the time of fellowship. And we don't have a major outbreak of, of the virus in, in our church or in our city. The church's ministry is that of exhortation. When the church doors open, the Lord expects us to be there. And the command is... We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As some is, there are some exceptions, like when the pandemic first came, of course, many churches would not meet. I, still, I think there are still some churches who don't meet. I, I'm in touch with one of my classmates from Dallas, Erwin Lutzer, who is the, retired now as a pastor at uh, Moody Memorial Church. And one of my students is ministering, is pastoring a church in downtown Chicago at Cicero, the church, Cicero Bible Church, where the IFCA started decades ago. And people from Moody Church, because they're not meeting, are attending down there, okay? So he has people attending church, and uh, Erwin Lutz is retired. I don't know what church he's, he's attending, but hopefully someday soon uh, the church will open, depending, of course, on what the governor of the state of Illinois has to say. So why is the local church important? Because this is where the training takes place. You can have one-on-one -on -one Bible studies, the Bible is not against that, or a small home study. When I was in high school, I had such a love to study the Bible. My cousin who was with me was the youth sponsor at Grace Baptist Church in Springfield then. And I asked Evelyn, I said, could we as a young, as a youth group, have uh, a Bible study under the auspices of the local church, of course, but in somebody's home? And so every Friday night, we went to a different home. The ladies prepared some refreshments, and uh, Evelyn, in fact, I brought the little notebook that I had back in 1957, 50, I told, told her about it last time, where I took notes, and she handed out printed sheets on the study of the Bible. So the Bible's not, uh, the, the New Testament, the book of Acts specifically, is not against having Bible studies on your own, but it's all under the auspices of the local church. The letter D, and I'm hurrying right along. It is the discharge of the Great Commission. We all should be witnesses, but it's the local church that gives us instruction and the impetus to share the gospel. There are lots of prayer church organizations uh, outside the local church that try to do that, and I'm glad for everybody who's being a fervent witness, but this is why we come together to be instructed, and then we're all ministers, according to Ephesians 4. We are trained in the local church to be witnesses, to be instructed. The Great Commission, the main command in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where you have the most lengthy um, rendition, 
you have a great commission in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. So five times the great commission is given to do what? While we are in this body, while we're in this life, we share the good news of salvation with others. And I think if you're here this morning, never having trusted in Christ the Savior, that's the best time to do it. Because we have no guarantee, any of us, that we'll live to see tomorrow. It's simple, and yet it's very difficult. Because the last thing Satan would want us to be is to be uh, a believer, removed from him, from his snatch forever. When he wants us to believe in his lies, oh, we are good enough, or, um, you know, I'm not all that bad, but it has nothing to do with good and bad. We're all sinners. Christ came to die for sinners. I need to trust in him as my only savior. But in that moment when I make a decision for Christ, I become eternally tried of God. He gives me a new nature. The discharge of the Great Commission, the pattern, and you're in Acts. What chapter are you in, Pastor? Twelve. Coming to chapter 13, the opening verses. This is what they did back then. They, the Holy Spirit told them, separate me, uh, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And they laid their hands on them, sent them away. They, the, they supported, or they separated, they sent, and they supported missionaries. And you have that as a pattern. Do we have to do it that way? Or is that just a nice suggestion? Those biblical patterns are like biblical commands. This is for the church age. That's how the work is carried. A local church recognizes somebody who then takes the gospel to uh, an unevangelized area or place where the church is needed badly. We, we pray for them. We support them. And that is the local church's task. The pattern is given in Acts 1.8. We start in our Jerusalem, which would be Springfield, Judea, Samaria, and where? The other most parts of the earth. It's been such a blessing uh, in, in uh, seeing what God is doing through the students that I had a privilege of training. I've been to Berlin, West Africa, one of my former students, having a wonderful ministry there where I spoke through a French interpreter to pastors from Togo, Benin, and Niger. A couple of years ago, I was down in Argentina. One of my other students, who's been there for 37 years, both his sons established churches nearby, which they're going to turn over to nationals, doing a wonderful work of the Lord. I've been to Trujillo in northern Peru. Uh, sounds like I travel all that I don't. You know, that's every few years that I take a trip like that. But uh, the Lord is using students who are well-trained, but they are normally recognized by one of our churches in America, sent and then supported. And then they are planning churches there. And that's exactly the way the New Testament pattern is. And whether it's the in Acts 2, and you've been through that, when somebody is safe, then you what? You, they're baptized. And then they're taught in doctrine, instructed. And then wherever they go, there are witnesses for the Lord. The next letter, on page seven, the executor of church discipline. Isn't it interesting? The first time a local church is mentioned anywhere in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 18, it has to do with disciplining whom? Not unbelievers, but believers. Assuming that while we are believers, we are imperfect. We still sin. And if you have somebody who offends you, you go to that person. If he hears you, great. If not, take someone else along. If not, you know, two or three witnesses. 
if he neglect to hear them, tell it to whom? To the Pope? To the Bishop? To the Board of Deacon? No, to the church, a local congregation. But if he neglect to hear the church, then you disassociate, you break fellowship with that person and let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Paul had to, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, had to tell the people at Corinth that there is this immoral man in the congregation who lived in sin with what appeared to be his mother-in-law. And he said, this is the kind of immorality that's not even mentioned among the heathen. So he said, what you need to do is this. He won't listen to you. Exclude him. So he is ashamed. And the neat thing is in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said, okay, he's learned his lesson. Invite him to come back. He deserves to be brought in the fellowship of believers again. Church members are responsible and accountable one to the other. The highest seat of authority in disputed matters is the local church. That makes the local church very important. Okay, if this is the first reference to a local church in the Bible class, where's the first reference to the universal church? The answer is two chapters earlier. Paul is way, I'm sorry, Christ is way up in northern Israel with Peter and the, the other disciples, and he asked them a question, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some people say this and this. Whom do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman for the twelve, said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not, has not, has that not revealed unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, and the place where that took place, there's a big cliff, and the Jordan River comes as a river. You can put it in your computer. Caesarea Philippi, or Banias, as it's called, B-A-N-I-A-S, way up in northern Israel. Christ said, the confession, Peter, that I'm the Christ, the Son, is as solid as the rock behind him. And then he said, I will build my church. That wasn't a local church. He was talking about the universal church. So Christ mentions the local church in Matthew 18 and the universal church in Matthew 16, verse 18. The flock of the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd rescues and redeems the stray sheep. The under-shepherd, your pastor, in a local church, provides and protects his flock. One of the titles for pastor is not just elder, meaning his spiritual maturity. He can be a young person like your pastor, but he has to show maturity. Secondly, he is a bishop. The word is episcopane, an overseer. He oversees the flock, that everything goes according to, to a biblical pattern. And then he is a shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? Well, in, Acts, in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What does he do? He feeds beside the still waters. He gives me the best nourishment. He feeds me spiritually, and he protects me against the error. Aren't we surrounded, and we don't even have time to get into that, by all sorts of doctrinal and moral error? But that's the pastor's job. In 1 Peter 5, we read that Feed the flock over which the which is among you that you take oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, not because you're in it for the money, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage. The pastor shouldn't be a dictator. He should be leading the flock by example. And Jesus Christ is the shepherd and bishop of our souls, 1 Peter 2.25, but the local pastor does what the chief shepherd does with the universal church. He provides and he protects. Finally, and I had to invert two, invert two terms here from 1 Timothy 
3.15. If I tarry long, that thou mayest know how to how to, to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. I switch it around. Actually, the term refers to the same thing. The local church is what? A pillar that supports what? The truth with a solid foundation. And what is the truth? Not as you see it, you and I, but as the Bible teaches it. And I could tell what your truth, what the truth is you're representing. And all you have to do is go to your website. You have a wonderful website and a doctrinal statement. In case you want to know, deacons and pastor, there's just one recommendation I have for your doctrinal statement. You mentioned the rapture, the second coming, the millennial kingdom, the eternal state. But the millennium is not separate. Make, make that a separate paragraph. So just separate it. So if people skim over it, they say, oh, what no millennium? You go right from the second advent to the eternal state. But it's well worded. Whereas you can look at our Lutheran friends' doctrine. And whether you, it's the Missouri Senate or the American Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, they always say this. There is no millennium. We denounce a millennium as a grievous error, as a grievous mistake. They're arguing against something that the Bible mentions repeatedly. The only place where you find out how long the millennium is, of course, is in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 2. The next six verses each mention the millennium. How often does the Holy Spirit have to say something before it's true? A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. So Christ will rule on this earth for a thousand years. And that is denied, I would say, by at least four-fifths of Christendom. And that's very sad. It's very sad. But you have the truth. It's not that we say these people are not Christians. We say these people are not consistent Christians. Because if the Bible teaches something, you, you believe it. In Are you familiar with with uh, Ken Ham, the uh, answers in Genesis, he built the full-scale uh, model of the ark out where is it in, in uh, Kentucky, right? Everybody who goes there is totally amazed. And our church is inviting seniors. They have a, a trip for uh, adults from Iowa to go to Kentucky to view them. And I encourage people to do that. But Ken Ham has the seven seas of world history, tracing it from Adam and Eve on to the end of time. And he totally leaves out the millennium because he, like Jay Adams, does not believe in a physical return of Christ to this earth to rule for a thousand years. And then after the new heaven and new earth are created, the heavenly Jerusalem is coming down from heaven and that's where we'll be living for all eternity. But it's important believe the whole counts of God even if nobody else believed it but you found something in the Bible you'd still be right in theology we do not count noses what truth is it that, that the local church defends of course we all should do it personally but look at page 10 there are major, five major doctrines which we call the fundamentals of the faith if we had time and pastor I'm almost done if we have time, in 1 Timothy 3.16, write the next verse after the pillar of ground and ground truth you have. Great is the mystery of godliness. The truth is God was manifest in the flesh. That when Jesus Christ came, he was the eternal son of God who became man. He had to be man so he could die. The reason he had to die is because he did it for your sin and for mine. Okay, so... The major truth that we defend is revolved around the person of Christ. And in the fundamentals of the faith, you can see them there. The first fundamental that you and I defend is that the Bible is true. It is God's word. It is within error. It is inspired. And then the other four main doctrines have to do with the person of Christ. He's virgin born. Why do we send 
missionaries from in the States to Germany. They have a German Baptist fellowship. I have the documentation a few years ago, the head of their seminary in Hamburg, Hamburg, you would say, Hamburg, in writing, denied the virtue and birth of Christ. That's how unbiblical the German Baptist Church Baptist churches have become. The virgin birth, the deity of Christ, his substitution and atonement, and then his physical resurrection and return. You believe that. You have a wonderful doctrinal statement. Um, if you ever run out of um, ideas, Pastor, preach through the doctrinal statement of your church. Um, it's well put. Somebody put a lot of work and effort into it. And uh, I appreciate this church, my former home church, and I wish you well. God's blessing on you. Thanks for letting me come this morning. And uh, I appreciate you folks very much. My prayers and interest are with you. I'll keep in touch. And uh, I appreciate the repeated opportunity to be here and to share the blessings of the Word of God. God's blessings as you go through the rest of the book of Acts. It's a wonderful book. It's mandatory for an early church, the, the pattern of the early church. But you can see why I think and why the Holy Spirit thinks that the church is God's organization on this earth to make the truth known and to defend it. <laughs>